So last week's passage, the end of uh, chapter 2 of John, ended with one of those really powerful statements about Jesus that we come across time and again in the Gospel of John. It's one of those statements that shows how Jesus is really presented by John as completely different than any person who ever came before him and any person who will ever come after him. And here's here's what John writes in verses 24, 25, chapter 2 of John. He says, he, that's Jesus, knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. Now, notice it doesn't say a man there, which is kind of a way you could have translated that, but but man, meaning uh, mankind in general, humanity. Jesus knew what was in humans. This is is Jesus' area of expertise, John John is saying. He is the foremost anthropologist in the world, in the the technical sense. He knew what was in humans, what, what drives us, what we're all about. This is Uh, something that Jesus knows supernaturally by virtue of his divine nature. He can just like see into the hearts of human beings, what's really going on. Even the darkest corners that we hardly know ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Have you ever ever talked to someone who you feel like, wow, this person just, they they can see through me. They, They know what's going on. Even like, Uh, whatever kind of front you're trying to put up or anything like that, this person can kind of see through it. Well, that is Jesus to the nth degree. He knew what was in man. Which means, when Jesus goes on to speak about mankind or humanity, when he goes on to talk about people like he does in our passage today, we need to listen to him. That's what you do when you have access to, to an expert, you listen to what they have to say. Uh, two weeks ago, my, uh, my wife and I ended up with the foremost expert on bats in Washington State in our dining room. It was a weird situation. I don't have time to explain it right now, but there she was. She was a, uh, a, a professional biologist, PhD, employed by the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and bats were her thing. So, so what did I do when she started talking to me about bats? I listened. That's, that's, of course I would. I mean, did I wake up that morning wanting to learn about bats? No. But when you've got the expert right there in front of you talking to you about their area of expertise, you need to listen. And, and really, that's what we're invited to do in this passage right here before us this morning. We're looking at John 3, 1 through 15. We are invited to hear what Jesus has to say about humanity. To hear what he has to say about people. Trust me, that is a lot more relevant than bats. I don't think that woman is here this morning. I don't see her. But really, humans versus bats, that's, that's something you want to learn a lot more about. Every single one of us. It's kind of a strange reversal uh, from what you would expect when you come to church naturally, I guess. Usually, you know, we, we come on Sundays to hear another person tell us about Jesus, right? That's typically what happens. Well, today, we get to hear Jesus tell us about ourselves, That's what's going on in this passage right here. Anthropological observations from the person who really knows humanity and humans best, Jesus himself. Our job then is to listen. 
to hear this, to reflect on ourselves, even if what Jesus says comes across as a challenge. Even if, depending on your perspective, even if what Jesus says right here comes across sounding like really, really bad news. Really, that's kind of the point of drama in our, our, our passage this morning. We're not looking at a story today so much as we are getting the opportunity to listen in on a conversation, to kind of be on a, a fly on, on the wall while Jesus talks to a, a person about humanity, shares these deep truths about who we are, what drives us, what, are, what, what the human condition is. The problem is, to this partic- particular person that Jesus is talking to, and maybe to many of us here today, this all ends up sounding like bad news. Let's go ahead. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and I'll try to introduce you to the the person that Jesus is talking to. Here it says, beginning of chapter 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So I'm going to kind of try to set the scene here just a little bit so you can picture the setting for this conversation. It's April in Jerusalem, right? That's the time of the Passover. That's why Jesus was was in the big city in the first place. And it's nighttime. So the average low temperature, I googled this so we know that it's true, the average low temperature this time of year in Jerusalem, 55 degrees. Okay, so they're probably in some heavier cloaks to get the chill out. And almost certainly, this conversation right here took place outside, probably up on a rooftop, as you can kind of see in the, in the picture there. They're up on the roof of a house. It could have been in a courtyard, I guess, you know, if they had had access to, like, uh, a fancier home or something like that. But there's no indication of that, so most likely it took place up on the roof. James Taylor style. And he, Mom, I know you were thinking about that. So there, there you go. And... Uh, you know, we get, we get in, our, in our passage today, like you could read this passage right here in just probably a minute and a half. Most likely this discussion took a lot longer than that. That's kind of a th- the, the, the way that the Gospels work is they will compress and share the highlights of really long conversations. So this conversation could have taken hours late into the night, even though it's going to seem really fast when we read it here. And also it's highly unlikely that Jesus and Nicodemus were completely alone. In this conversation, rabbis would often talk late into the night with their disciples around them because this would kind of be for the benefit of the students as well as they got to listen into these discussions. That's why I think uh, John records this conversation in such vivid detail. He remembers it. I think that John was there listening to these two guys discussing these deep truths of humanity. John also remembers the visitor well, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is presented here as a good person. That's what you should get out of this. He's, he's presented, this is a good guy we're talking about. Kind of an exemplary Jew in, in many ways. Uh, John takes some pains to point this out. First, he points out he's a, he's a Pharisee. Now, we're going to delve deeper into this group um, later on as we go through John. They show up a lot, as they do in the other Gospels. But John's readers right here would immediately know that what this group of Jews was famous for was for their law-keeping. They were the, really the ultimate rule followers. They followed not only uh, the Old Testament to the letter, but they also had a, this big stack of oral tradition, which they also treated as authoritative, the teaching of their rabbis. So these guys were the rule-followers of rule-followers. 
Nicodemus is also in a position of power. He's a ruler of the Jews, as, as John puts it here. And we're going to see later on in the gospel, this means that he was part of the Sanhedrin, which was basically this high council of everything Jewish. So he's, a, you know, he's in a position of power. He's also got smarts. Um, John, oh, I don't have that one highlighted. It comes in a later verse. He, he, John, uh, Jesus actually calls him the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. Later on in the passage, like, this guy is a teacher of some prominence. People would, would know about him at this time. He was distinctive. Which is maybe why he comes to Jesus at night. Something of a public figure. Uh, remember in the last passage, Bruce had just taught on, Jesus had just ransacked the temple. Right? Committed this, you know, basically an act of vandalism, with, but one with high uh, symbolic significance for Jesus and his mission. He's also a Jerusalem outsider. He's just, you know, he's, he's like 30, 31 years old. He's, he's from Galilee, total outsider of the uh, religious establishment at the time. So Nicodemus might not want it to be well publicized that he is going to make a special visit to talk to this guy. So he comes at night. Possibly. It's also possible this was just kind of the free moment in Nicodemus's busy day planner. So he could have just, you know, we're, we're not entirely sure. Either of those are, are possibilities. But either way, John's main point about Nicodemus in these first few verses is that he's a good person. This is a good guy. We even see this in the gracious way that, that he talks to Jesus. Rabbi, he calls him. It's a title of honor and, and respect. One that at this point, Jesus had probably not earned in the traditional sense that rabbis at this time would earn it. But this guy throws it to him. It's a collegial greeting, as, as one commentator put it. He also expresses this, this generally positive view about uh, where Jesus comes from. You know, many, many of the, uh, the Jews at the time, we'll see this in the other Gospels, when Jesus was doing these signs and these miracles, they, they thought that he, he was empowered by the devil, by, by Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. But, but what Nicodemus says here is, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So he attributes, you know, Jesus' power to the proper source. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Now, now keep in mind, this is not a full expression of faith in Jesus as Messiah in a more robust sense than that. But, but man, it's a really good place to start, right? A good, upstanding Jew. He's saying nice, gracious things about Jesus. Where could this conversation possibly take a turn toward the contentious? It's actually as soon as Jesus opens his mouth, which is in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is an abrupt and violent shift in this conversation. If, if it was one that had sound effects, you would have had like that record screeching, you know, like, whoa, where did, where did this come from? It almost sounds like a non sequitur that Jesus is coming from. Because, you know, here's Nicodemus. He says this nice, pleasant greeting, and Jesus just comes back straight for the heart. You need to be born again. Two, two terms in particular, I think, would strike Nicodemus's ears in this statement right here. The first is kingdom of God. 
Pharisees were, were really big on this concept of the kingdom of God. They were, they were sick of being oppressed. They longed for uh, the glory of the Israel of old to be restored. They, they longed for the fulfillment of the, of the prophets, to, uh, the, the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, which they interpreted it to be literally true, that, that one day God would be king, that the dead would be raised physically from their tombs, all the Israel saints of old, that, that sickness and death would be banished from the land, and, and Israel would be this... This vibrant, uh, fruitful place that people from all nations would look at Israel and what's going on there, what God's done for them, and say, hey, we want to be part of that. And they would all come and worship Israel's God. This was the hope of the Pharisees. And, and this is what Nicodemus would think about when, he, when Jesus mentions this term here, God's kingdom. That would be the ruling sphere of God, where he is in authority right now, but wherein it will actually come to ultimate fulfillment in time and space in the land of Israel resurrection of the dead, life everlasting, all the promises of the prophets lived out in glorious fulfillment. This is what all the Pharisees were, were longing for. This is actually why they were so into law-keeping. Um, Pharisees at the time taught that if they uh, just could keep the law well enough and get all their fellow Jews to do, to do the same, kind of like this um, restoration movement, well, then they could hasten the coming of God's kingdom. That God would bring this all about faster, you know, and then all of a sudden get rid of the Romans and all the oppressors and and all of that. This is what the Pharisees were longing for, waiting for, working toward. But what would shock Nicodemus and and probably offend Nicodemus, most likely from his perspective as a good person, is Jesus' primary assertion right here that to get into this kingdom, law-keeping is not enough. You must be born again. Uh, Nicodemus, if he was like most Jews at his time, believed that uh, pretty much any Jew who did his Jewish thing and basically kept the law of Moses would be included in God's kingdom. You know, as long as you're not a total scoundrel or, or an apostate, like, you're basically good. Well, Jesus, Jesus blows that, thinking, that way of thinking completely apart right here. Unless you are born again, he says, born from above would be another way to translate that, meaning it's God's work doing something miraculously in you from the inside out. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to start over. You need to begin from scratch. You need to be remade, even you, Nicodemus, one of the best of the Israelites, not what Nicodemus was expecting to hear. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, you know, tone of voice is important in this sort of thing. I wish we had an audio recording of this conversation because it's, kind of, it's hard to tell if Nicodemus is being completely serious here or he's just kind of playing along with the metaphor as rabbis would often do when they engaged with each other. If he's, if he's been, being serious, then he's just genuinely baffled by the physics of this. Like, Am I, am I really supposed to get back inside of my mom? You know, he's an old guy. His mom's probably not even alive. Like, how is this supposed to work? But I, I personally think that Nicodemus is expressing just um, some playful confusion or pushback about what Jesus has just said. What, like, what do you mean born again? You mean a total start over? For real? Am I hearing you right on this? You've got to be kidding me, Rabbi. No, he's not. Jesus actually proceeds to just double down on what he just said in the next verse, verse, four, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Two different metaphors Jesus is using here to um, illustrate what this new birth is like. The first one's actually drawn from the Old Testament. It's the part of being born of the water and born of water and the spirit. It's actually a reference uh, back to the prophet Ezekiel, who linked both of these images, water and spirit, to describe what God would one day do for his people to prepare them to enter his kingdom. They, they weren't ready the way they were. God was going to have to do something miraculous. Here's what it says, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. This, this is renewal that, is, that, that God is talking about right here. Regeneration, as, as theologians would put it. This rebirth from the inside out brought about only by the powerful and effective work of God's spirit. And that is exactly what Nicodemus is, or what Jesus is referencing here to Nicodemus when he says water and spirit. It is a callback to that prophecy from Ezekiel. Now, there is, there is some debate about this particular passage among Christians. You've probably heard some of these things before if you've, if you've studied in this passage in depth. Some people think that when Jesus says water and spirit here, he's actually talking about two different categories, not one reality as, as Ezekiel presents them there. Like maybe that one represents physical birth and the other spiritual birth. Like, hey, you need to be actually born from a, a, a human being first and then born from the spirit, then you can enter into my kingdom. Uh, another view thinks that maybe Jesus is talking about baptism, the actual act of going under the water when he talks about uh, born of water. Uh, and then born of the Spirit would be, um, you know, when the Spirit regenerates you, something like that. Well, the main reason that I don't, don't there's, there's a lot of problems with, with both of those views, but the main reason that I don't buy into either of them is because Jesus actually, right after this, rebukes Nicodemus. For not knowing about this. He says, hey, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You should know this. Which I think is an indication that this is something we need to look back to the Old Testament to find. That this, this was something that was included in the prophets. And, and, he's, and Nicodemus is someone who's read Ezekiel over and over again. He should have picked up on this. Uh, it, it's also very clear in that passage in Ezekiel and for, for what, it, you know, what Jesus says here. That I think he's talking about one reality when he says, born of water and the spirit. That it's, it's that Ezekiel image of being cleansed from our sin and reborn from the Spirit all in one great creative act of God within us. Water and Spirit there connected to total renewal, rebirth. Water and Spirit here connected to total renewal, rebirth. Which is why he follows up then, Jesus does, with that bit about flesh giving birth to flesh and spirit to spirit. Like this new birth, it's not something that you can achieve through human effort. The, the, the flesh. It's through the work of the Spirit. The, you know, God birthing you, in a sense. I, it's actually a call back to what um, John has already said in, in, in chapter 1. He says in, here in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See that birth metaphor again? Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, God birthing you. 
Two categories set up in opposition. You've got flesh, which kind of represents all human effort, human rituals, human achievement, and then spirit representing the work of God. Entering God's kingdom is completely a matter of God's work. That's what, that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus right here. God birthing you, nothing else. Jesus is crystal clear on this, and we see this on, developed as we go through the book of John. Now, my guess is that Nicodemus uh, was one of those people who you can just kind of read their emotions all over their face. Do you know people like this? My, my wife is like this. She's not, she's not in here right now, I can tell you this, but like, when, uh, when, when, if you're talking to her about something and she doesn't like it, you don't have to read her mind. You can, you can just read her face. It's, it's, it is all right there. And I think Nicodemus was that same way because Jesus is just saying all this. And then he stops uh, mid-quote to say to Nicodemus, hey, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Like, like get your jaw off the floor, okay? This, this is what you should expect, And then Jesus follows up with the next metaphor. It's kind of a pun, which would be the metaphor of the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is is where it seems like Jesus is almost having fun in this conversation with with Nicodemus because that word for wind and and spirit that you see right there they're actually both the exact same word uh, in in the Greek text that we have here pneuma so what so what we've got is is kind of a layered metaphor here like a theological pun is is what I would call it just like the the wind pneuma is is invisible and, and and mysterious yet nevertheless powerful so it is with the work of God's wind the spirit Remember, they're sitting outside for this conversation. So I like to think that, you know, right when Jesus said this, there was this puff of wind that hit their faces. You know, or maybe he could nod toward the dancing branches of a nearby sycamore tree or, or, or something like that as he made this comparison. I was actually um, walking in Wright Park last week when that big north wind uh, rolled into town. And it, it, it was beautiful. The, you know, the leaves were flying off. All these different trees, every which way, hitting the ground and swirling and then lifting back up in the air again. It was, uh, it, it was like Jesus' metaphor here had just come to life. Uh, the invisible, mysterious work of, of God's spirit, God's wind, nevertheless made visible and, and gloriously beautiful in its effect. That is what it's like when a person is reborn from above, Jesus is saying. Have a little bit more on that later. But so far, these metaphors have not helped Nicodemus at all. Verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? That's the last quote of, of Nicodemus in this chapter. Just, just more bafflement. How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So those first three verses there, you can hear it in Jesus' tone. They just come across as a series of three rebukes against Nicodemus. One, you're the teacher of Israel. You're an Old Testament expert. You should really know this stuff. I'm saying it shouldn't be brand new for you. Two, you're not receiving our testimony. 
Again, a running theme in John that Jesus has great and glorious things to say, but people do not want to hear it. Then three, if you can't understand this stuff about rebirth, Nicodemus, then you are really going to struggle with what I have to say later on. That, that's, that's the distinction he's making there with earthly things and, and heavenly things. Earthly things likely kind of a reference to the fact that this rebirth takes place in the, in the here and now for people on earth before our death. Heavenly likely referring to further aspects of our glorification, uh, resurrection, renewal, all the other thing, glorious things God will do in us and for us through the work of Jesus Christ. If you don't get this, Jesus is saying, what I'm telling you right now, this new birth that happens you know, here on earth, then you're really going to start struggling when I tell you about the other stuff, the graduate level stuff, okay? That's why Jesus adds that part there about no one ascending into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus talking about himself. It's him making a reference to his unique level of access as the eternal Son of God, his access to this truth, his unique quality as the only human being who is also God, the Son, and pre-existed with God forever and ever through the depths of eternity. If anyone is qualified to speak on these things, it's Jesus. Yet Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't want to receive his testimony because he's not ready to hear it. At least not yet. How about you? I want us to pause here before hitting the last two verses in our passage today. How, how does this, this primary assertion that Jesus has been building everything around all along that you must be born again? This is you plural, again, speaking about all humanity, not just Nicodemus. How does that sound to your ears? You must be born again. How would you respond if, you know, it was you sitting on the rooftop with Jesus and had come to ask him some questions, learn more about him, what he's all about? And he looks you straight in the eyes and says this to you from the get-go. You must be born again. Well, believe it or not, your response to this statement depends so much, I think, not so much on what you believe about Jesus, but how you see yourself, your self-perception, your self-image. If you consider yourself a good person, someone who's basically, in general, got their act together, then what Jesus says here is bad news. And, and you're not going to want to have anything to do with hearing it. There's, there's three big reasons for this. Three reasons why what Jesus says here when he says, be born again, it comes across as bad news for good people. The first one is that basically in saying you must be born again, he's actually saying to you, you're not a good person. No matter what you think about yourself. I'm going to say that again. You're not a good person. None, none of us here is a good person. I'm not a good person. Ryan's not a good person. Emily's not a good person. Randy's not a good person. Saw a lot of nods with that last one, but it's true. None, no, one, no one here is a good person. In fact, every person, with, based on what Jesus is saying here, every single person needs to start over. We need a, a total rebuild. And for people who think that they're basically in good shape already, to hear you need a total rebuild is not good news. I think about... Um, Earl, who just, you know, a few weeks ago finished this amazing car project he'd been working on for years, a Cobra. Beautiful piece of machinery. I hope that you guys get to see it someday. He had driven it to the church office here one day, and it's because he was going to take it on later in the day to the state patrol to be inspected. 
you know, to make sure that it's like street legal and all that. They got to make sure that it's all, you know, the turn signals work, whatever. And then they say, okay, you can legally drive this on the road. It's a, it's a licensed legal vehicle. Shouldn't be a big deal, right? Maybe they'll say some minor stuff. You got to get those windshield wipers to actually work. Earl, okay, you know, he can fix that and take it out there. And then, you know, he can drive his Cobra all that he wants. But what if Earl had brought his car there to the state patrol office this gleaming, beautiful cobra that he had just labored over and uh, you know, sunk a lot of himself into it. And they told him, I'm sorry, your car must be remade. Now, excuse me? Earl would say, what, what, what needs to be re- repaired with the vehicle? And, they, and the inspector would say, no, I'm sorry, you didn't hear me. Your car needs to be born again. It needs to be scrapped and then rebuilt from the bottom up. How do you think Earl would respond to that statement? Maybe a test of his sanctification at this stage in his life. <laughs> you know? Well, it's bad news. It's, it's really bad news. It's, it's, it's something he labored over for years, something that he thought was good, something he was proud of, and then he's told to tear it down and start over again? That is how this call of Jesus to be born again would sound to the ears of anyone who thinks they're good. It's bad news. Your life, this, this life that you've labored on for years, Nicodemus, to be, a, to be a decent person and follow the rules and pay your taxes and go to church, you know, you're saying that's not enough, Jesus? How would that, how would that sound to you? Well, you might say, what do I need to modify? I, I, I can do some repairs. Do I need to stop swearing as much? Kind of tune up my tithing a bit? Get rid of those lustful thoughts and then, and then I'll be ready to go, ready to rock and roll? No, Jesus says, you must be born again. Why? Because no matter how good you think you are, Nicodemus or anyone else, you are in fact thoroughly and comprehensively corrupted by sin. This is the human condition, Jesus is saying. You must be born again. John Calvin summarizes the offense of Jesus' statement this way. He says, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole human nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. You don't need a tune-up, Jesus is saying. You need to be completely dismantled and then rebuilt by me. This is the only way to enter my kingdom. Bad news number two for someone who thinks they're good. Jesus is saying your condition is more dangerous than you realize. Not only must you be born again, but if, if you aren't, you cannot enter God's kingdom. This is a real and serious consequence Jesus is talking about here. Nothing could sound worse to the ears of a Pharisee like Nicodemus or, or to any of the Jews reading John's gospel later on in this first century. Because to be excluded from God's kingdom is, is to be damned. It, it, it's to be told that you're... you're, you're uh, subject to God's wrath, a theme that John gets into big time at the end of this chapter. We'll be teaching on it in a couple of weeks. There, there is no worse news that you, could be, that, that you could get than to be told that you are headed on a road away from God's kingdom. You must be born again. Must. Must being the key word here. Uh, the great evangelist George Whitfield was once asked uh, why do you keep teaching on this passage so often in your, in your sermons that you must be born again? And, and Whitfield responded, he said, because you must be born again, end quote. Uh, uh, every other path leads to destruction. 
Bad news number three for good people. What Jesus says here means you can't do anything to fix yourself or to fix other people. This is God's work. Regeneration, new birth. This life from above, it's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can achieve through human effort, any effort. Moral improvement, uh, that, that won't get you any closer to God's kingdom than not moral improvement. Religious ceremonies aren't going to get you there. Kindness to other people will not get you there. What, what Jesus makes so clear right here is that this, this new birth from above is 100% a work of God that is brought about miraculously and sovereignly through the work of God's Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The regeneration of the heart is God's work, not our work. This new life that we get in Jesus, it's a miracle. It's not a reward. It's it's not something that you get because you were clever enough to figure out who Jesus really was or that you were good enough to decide, I'm going to follow the rules. None of that. You can no more control the regeneration of your heart or the heart of another person than I can control the wind there in Wrights Park as I was watching it that day. You can't. I can observe it. I can feel it. I can marvel at its beauty. But I cannot tell it where to go. The wind blows where it wishes. And for people who like to be in control, who want us to be in charge of these sort of things, not God, that sounds like bad news. You know, I'm a a parent of three young kids. Three, three kids that I just, I love very deeply. And what Jesus is saying to me right here, what, what he's saying is that the eternal fate of my kids is not in my hands as their father. It's not as, as much as I would want it to be. And that's because regeneration is not just a matter of getting my kids to uh, believe the right things, you know, and get them to, you know, um, learn all the right information or, or guarding them from all the bad stuff in the world. Like if I can just kind of make a bubble around them, keep all those influences out, then they're going to be okay. No, what Jesus is saying is all the bad stuff, it's in here. It's deep inside of you. It's not all out there. There is bad stuff out there, but the worst part is right inside of you, the human heart. And what he's saying is that for anyone to become a follower of Jesus, it takes nothing less than the miraculous mysterious, uncontrollable, unpredictable, powerful work of God's spirit in that person's heart to to open their eyes to their own sinfulness, to open their eyes to to the beauty of Jesus, open their hearts to God's grace. Without this work of God, there is no hope for anyone. It's, It's a miracle when someone comes to Jesus every time, not the result of a formula. You can't do anything to earn this miracle for yourself. You can't do anything to secure this miracle for other people. God is in control from start to finish. And again, for people like me who like to be in control, that sounds like really bad news. But for those people who are willing to cede this control to a good and gracious God, the God who truly is the only one worthy to have control to that degree, there is wonderful news coming, which is exactly where Jesus goes next. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, the end of our passage. Verse 14 And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus says right here is good news for all people. Wonderful news. Again, three ways I'm going to point this out. The first way that this is really good news is 
No, you're not a good person, as Jesus made clear in the, you know, the assertion you must be born again. But the wonderful news is you don't have to be good to get into God's kingdom because Jesus was good for you. That's what Jesus is saying with this um, analogy right here that he's making. It's an analogy Nicodemus, again, would be familiar with as someone who's read and studied the Old Testament a lot. It's a story from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, when a bunch of uh, poisonous snakes invaded the Israelite camp and, and started biting people. And it's important to recognize when you look back at this story that these snakes, it wasn't just like random, oh no, there's snakes here. No, these snakes were sent into the camp by God as a form of judgment on the people, on everyone in the camp, because they all deserved it. It, it, was, it wasn't just, you know, like, oh, here's some of the bad Israelites getting bit and the good Israelites are over here not getting bit. No, everybody was getting bit by these serpents because they were all guilty And if God doesn't intervene, they're all going to die. They're poisoned. They're on their way to death. Yet God, in his mercy, offers a way of escape that was not contingent on the people's goodness or cleaning up their act. It's beautiful. He had Moses uh, make this snake, this serpent, out of bronze and put it up on a pole. And then anybody who was in the camp who looked at the serpent on the pole, they were healed instantaneously, miraculously, new life. Do you see the parallels here? Look at me, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, but also to anyone else who's listening. Look at me and find new life. Don't look at your own goodness. Don't look at your your track record, Nicodemus. Don't look at your long list of, of Jewish bona fides that put you head and shoulders above everyone else. In fact, Look away from those things. Take your eyes off of them and look at me. Then you will be healed. And that's because salvation, again, is 100% God's work, start to finish. And it's wonderful news because that means we can rest. Like the pressure's off, this pressure that so many of us feel to perform and try to, try to make God happy with us or make other people happy with us. No, we don't have that pressure to save ourselves because Jesus was good for us. We have to look to him. The way this is good news number two, this also means that we don't have to shame or punish other people for their sins because Jesus was good for them too. This is so important. It's a, 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 you know, what Jesus is saying with this analogy here is he's not just pointing backwards to that story of, of Moses in the Old Testament. It's also clear he is pointing forward to the cross. So must the Son of Man be so must the Son of Man Jesus be lifted up on a pole, a pole made out of wood, and thereby bear the curse of the serpent. It's what the serpent in that story represented. It represented God's judgment, the poison of the serpent that God sent to punish his people. Well, on the cross, Jesus takes the full fury and the full poison of another serpent, the poison of sin. And right there on the cross, Jesus takes it every single drop, the poison of of, of, of every lie you've ever told, the the poison of every violent act, the the poison of every self-righteous thought or or prideful sneer, the, the, the poison of a trillion sins. Jesus drank that cup to the dregs, all of it, for all of us. This is the means of our new birth. 
This is the answer to that question Jesus asked, or that Nicodemus asked. How can it be? It is through me, Jesus is saying. This can all be possible through the work of me on the cross. And when we remember this, that Jesus took our punishment, the punishment of, 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 of every person who trusts in him, it transforms how we treat each other, transforms how we see each other right here and right now. You know, it's so easy for us as Christians to slip back into this mode of what I would call just moral superiority, of kind of evaluating some people as worse sinners than others, and of judging some Christians as, as better than others. The, the Bible gives us no license to do that. The, the cross just takes away any grounds we have for that kind of thinking. The cross undermines our basis for shaming anyone. Because Jesus bore all that shame. He took it. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe re- really that Jesus took your shame? Do you believe he took someone else's shame? You can't shame them. The cross undermines our entitlement to, to punish other people uh, for their sins because Jesus bore that punishment. God is the judge, God alone, because of this. Instead, in these um, communities that, that are established by the cross that we call churches, right here, we can accept one another in a spirit of grace. Not cheap grace, but costly grace, knowing that Jesus bore every drop of that poison. All the punishment, all the shame we deserve, Jesus took that all, and it is gone away forever. There is nobody that deserves to be here. No one. We all got in by grace. We all stay in by grace. We all treat each other in a spirit of unearned, costly grace, no matter the sin, no matter the sinner. This is why it is good news, what Jesus is saying right here, for all people. Good news number three. What Jesus says here, that you must be born again, means that you can't give up on anyone, ever. Anyone. You can circle a word on the text on your handout there, that this all-important, beautiful gospel word we see over and over in the book of John, the word whoever. Whoever. The work of Jesus on the cross is of such extraordinarily high value that it can cover any sin. The work of Jesus on the cross is of such extraordinarily high value that it can cover every sin. The work of Jesus on the cross is of such extraordinarily high value that when these sins are covered, when these sins are put away, they are gone forever. End of story. It is a permanent healing that Jesus is offering here when he says, look at me. And when you combine that powerful work of of God's Son on the cross with the the powerful work of, of God's Spirit applying that work to the hearts of people, what you get is this force of salvation that cannot be stopped and cannot be resisted. God can save anyone. And he proves it over and over again. There is no person out of God's reach. There is no heart that is too hard that God, by his spirit, cannot turn it to flesh. So that means there's hope for anyone, even for good people. Because a running theme that we see in all four Gospels is that the people who are the furthest away from Jesus are the people who have their lives together. The good people. 
you could call them. The ones with a generally clean moral track record. The religious, the Nicodemuses of the the world. These are the people who are furthest from God's kingdom. It's, It's irony, right? These are the ones who resist the good news of God's grace, are the ones uh, who are the goodest. And that's because for them, it all sounds like bad news. Think back to that analogy of, of, of Earl's car. Why would he be so offended when they tell him to do a total rebuild? Because it's a beautiful car. It's, it's this one he worked hard on, one he, he was convinced was of high quality and high value. But what if Earl was taking instead to the state patrol some, like, 1997 Crown Vic that he bought for $200 at a police auction, right? One that they told him at the auction, this thing probably doesn't run, but maybe you can get a, you know, a couple hundred miles out of it or something like that. How would he respond then when they tell him, I'm sorry, your car needs a rebuild? Well, he'd probably agree with them. Say, that's what I was thinking all along. I'm right there with you. And then he would rejoice when the inspector offers to do the rebuild for him. When he says, I will do all of the work. Just come to me. Let me dismantle your car and I will remake it into something beautiful and glorious through my good and powerful work. That is what Jesus says when he says, come to me and be reborn. For a bad person, it's what they're already longing for and they know it. It's, it's what they know that they need so badly. And this is why, for the good person, the person who has their act together, they are the one who is farthest from salvation. Because for them, this call to lose their life sounds like agony. Bad news. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says in one of the other Gospels, when he's standing in a crowd of good people, truly, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. This is the irony of the gospel. And the only reason that there's hope for Nicodemus or the other good people like him, including the good people in this room who might be hearing this, it's because of what Jesus declares to another good person, the rich young ruler. You guys familiar with this story? It's actually recorded in all three of the other Gospels. It's not in the Gospel of John, but there are some striking parallels to this conversation with Nicodemus. This guy, this rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus asking a similar question to Nicodemus. He says, what must I do to have the life of God's kingdom? What must I do to have eternal life is, 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 is actually how he puts it there. You know, and he, this guy actually has very similar credentials to Nicodemus. He is an upstanding Jew. He tells Jesus, I have kept all the laws of Moses since birth. All of them. That might be some hyperbole, but he says, I'm like, if you will not find any bad marks on my record when it comes to law keeping. He's also in this uh, position of power and privilege. He's rich. He's a ruler. He's young. Like, it's hard to imagine like a gooder person that could be approaching Jesus. And he is the epitome of someone whose heart will be hard toward the message of Jesus. When Jesus says, lose your life and you will find it, give up all that you have and follow me, it sounds to this guy like really, really bad news. So it's not surprising that in this story, the rich young ruler ends up walking away sad. That's what it says there. He walks away sad, hearing the call as, of Jesus as bad news and choosing instead to keep his life the way it is, to not dismantle it and follow Jesus. And so then the disciples, watching this guy walk away, they're like shaking their heads, and they say, they say a very poignant question. Who then can be saved? Like, if, if this guy, the goodest of the good, if there's no hope for him that he's ever going to accept the gospel, then I like, what hope is there for rich people? What hope is there for good people? 
Is there any? And Jesus' response right here is so full of hope and power. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Salvation is 100% God's work. This is why there's hope for good people, because God can save even them, for all things are possible with God. There are two more times that Nicodemus shows up in the Gospel of John. The first time is about halfway through the book where he defends Jesus against some of his fellow Jewish council members. And then the second time is right at the very end where he risks his reputation to carry Jesus' body away from the cross. If there's hope for a good person like Nicodemus, then there is hope for anyone. Pray with me, please. Father, we rejoice in your power. We rejoice in your kindness. We rejoice in your grace. We come to you as those who don't deserve anything from you. We come as those who don't bring a thing to the table other than poison, burdens, and sin. And we rejoice that by your Spirit, applying the good work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and the tomb, that you are remaking us into something beautiful. Thank you for that, Father. We rejoice in that, and for that, we worship you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.